0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com. This is Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan, and hi, everybody. Today, our guests include two influential
1: thought leaders who are both conservatives Yet they are on opposite sides of a policy choice that has seemed almost fundamental to the Republican agenda in recent years, cutting taxes. What follows is a really interesting conversation, and I'm delighted to pass the torch
0: of moderating on this one to Naima Reza. She is a journalist with New York Magazine and with Fox Media, and she is also an excellent moderator. Now onto the show. Here's Naima.
2: It is often said that there are only two guarantees in this life, death and taxes. But if we were to add a third in the 21st century, it might be that the Republican Party will almost always refuse to raise those taxes. Indeed, we saw major tax cuts under President George W. Bush, and we saw more yet under President Donald Trump, many of which are set to expire next year. The 2024 elections will determine what happens to those expiring tax credits with Republicans overwhelmingly seeking to continue them and Democrats proposing to only keep tax cuts for less wealthy Americans while adding new taxes for wealthy individuals and for corporations. It's a difference that the Wall Street Journal has estimated is about $6 trillion in revenue over 10 years. And to put that in context, that's almost 20% of our current national debt, which has reached a toll of $34 trillion and counting. So all of this begs the question— of whether the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes is fiscally irresponsible. And here to debate that, I have two highly influential Republicans who do not see eye to eye. So let's meet our debaters. Arguing yes to the question is Oren Cass. Oren is the executive director of the think tank American Compass. New York Magazine also dubbed him the nerd trying to turn the GOP populist. He's a former senior fellow of the Manhattan Institute and a political advisor who has advised Senator Marco Rubio on economic policy and served as domestic policy director in Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Welcome, Warren. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Are you, in fact, the nerd trying to turn the GOP populist?
0: Uh, I am a nerd. We'd have to talk about the word populism a little more, but it's okay. not, not a bad description.
2: Not a bad description. Thank you for being here. And arguing no to the question of, is the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes fiscally irresponsible, is former U.S. Congressman from Indiana, David McIntosh. David is a co-founder of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy, and he is president of the Club for Growth, a conservative organization that advocates aggressively for free markets and against taxes. The New York Times calls it an anti-tax organization. And the Club for Growth's political arm has backed the state races of influential Republicans like Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Welcome, David.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: Are you, in fact, an anti-tax organization?
1: I think that's a fair description. We're called a lot of things, but I'll take that one. That's one of the nicer ones. Yes.
2: (laughs) All right. Before we jump in, I just have two rapid-fire questions for you. Why do you think the discussion is urgent now? And which politician do you look at, could be a Republican or a Democrat, that's the best exemplar of what Republicans should be doing tax-wise? So, Warren, I'll start with you.
0: We are in, a, at this point, a fiscal crisis. We are paying interest on the debt, approaching what we spend on Medicare or Social Security or, or defense. Uh, and so either something has to give or something is going to break. You know, I think, frankly, everyone everyone on both sides has a long way to go in in thinking about the compromise that are going to be necessary. Um, give me but,
1: one
2: person.
0: Well, but folks like, I think, Senator Rubio and Senator J.D. Vance, um, okay. I think, are doing
1: the best job
0: of of really thinking through what it's going to take.
2: David, same two questions for you. Yeah,
1: so I think the question is a misdirection from the problem we have. Oren mentioned it. We've got a looming fiscal crisis, runaway spending and debt. And the problem really is the spending, not the tax structure. Mm-hmm. I think the leader who did best on tax policy was actually former Senator Pat Toomey, who did a large amount of the crafting of the Trump tax cuts.
2: I want to jump in now to opening arguments. We'll dive right in. I want each of you to take a few minutes to just explain your position. And Orrin, you're up first. You're arguing yes to the question, is the Republican Party's Refusal to raise taxes, fiscally irresponsible.
0: I want to start by thanking David for joining this conversation. I think it's it's a critical one that is going on within the party, more so behind the scenes right now. But I think we have to make progress on. And so I actually wanted to start with some of the places where I I assume we agree. I think, you know, I agree entirely with David's point that that spending is, at the end of the day, the heart of the problem we have right now. The spending post-pandemic is totally out of control and it's going to have to be brought Back into control. I think we agree that we should want government to be limited. We should want to only burden taxpayers with the taxes necessary to provide the services we are committed to providing. Uh, I think we agree that fiscal responsibility entails raising that necessary revenue, meaning balancing the budget at the end of the day. Uh, and I think as you heard in the in our initial comments, we agree that we are in a, a totally unsustainable situation right now. I think where we where we disagree, and the resolution does a, a good job of, of highlighting this, is how do Republicans address that? Um, my position is that at the end of the day, both in terms of what conservatism demands in principle and what our political realities require, some amount of new revenue, which means a tax increase in some way, is going to have to be part of any way out of this. And so if we are going to be fiscally responsible, that means being willing to consider tax increases. Uh, I would highlight three reasons for that argument. One, as I said, is a matter of principle. The idea that sort of conservatism means cutting taxes isn't true. Um, if you go all the way back to Edmund Burke, he has a wonderful quote about how everything is a matter of circumstance, that at the end of the day, statesmanship and policymaking means responding to specific circumstances, not holding to an abstract principle, and to that end, you know, Ronald Reagan raised taxes repeatedly. <laughs> so after he cut them. Ab- absolutely. He also cut taxes. But when he cut the taxes and they realized they didn't have enough revenue, his response was to raise taxes. At least five major legislative increases. Some people tell you as many as 11 times. George W, H.W. Bush raised taxes. The idea that you cannot raise taxes is a very newfound principle. The second point I would make, and this goes to sort of conservative practice and how we actually get to where we both want to go, is that at the end of the day, it's not taxes that determine how big government is. It's the spending. Whether or not you raise the money for what government is doing, it is what government spends, the role it is playing in the economy that dictates the, the size of government and whether or not it's limited. And if anything, the deficit spending is worse because you're distorting markets further and adding more debt. And so what concerns me is that the idea that, well, if we cut taxes, enough spending will have to come down doesn't actually make sense. What you're doing is essentially telling people they can have the big government and not even have to pay for it. Whereas it seems to me the conservative approach should be to say, guys, you're going to have to pay for the amount of government we have, which means if you want lower taxes, you're going to have to sign up for the lower spending too. And so that's why we can be for both together. But the more that you allow them to diverge, it seems to me the more you lose the argument. And, and that's the, the third piece in my mind is just the empirical case. Since the early 1990s, Republicans have tried this. We are just going to deprive the government of revenue and the spending will come down. It has failed. Miserably. It simply does not work. And, you know, the quintessential image stuck in my mind is that 2012 Republican primary debate when the candidates were asked, Would you take $10 of spending cuts for $1 of spending increases? They said no. I assume David would say no. And my view is you cannot be fiscally responsible unless you are willing to say yes to that.
1: Um, My answer is emphatically no. Uh, Raising taxes would hurt the economy, hurt the American people, send us in the wrong direction. And to say we've got a big spending problem and therefore we should raise taxes seems to me the exact wrong direction. Because it deflects from needing to gather the political force to actually get Washington to reduce spending. Since the 1990s, politicians in both parties have ignored any sense of responsibility about spending because they could borrow. And the new economic theory says, don't worry about debt and deficits. It's all going to be fine. And they don't tell you this, but the reason they think that is that we can shuffle the consequences off to the rest of the world because our currency is the reserve currency. That's coming to an end. You see China and Russia and India, Brazil, starting to form a coalition to challenge us as that reserve currency. And when that happens, then all of the inflation that comes from our debt comes back to us. Uh, Even worse and more dire consequences than we're seeing now with inflation. So the answer isn't to say, okay, let's belly up to the bar and raise everybody's taxes, because what we've seen in the past is lower taxes actually increase the economy, and that lets the government collect more revenue. Kennedy did it in the 1960s, and economic growth went from two and a half to four and a half percent. Reagan, on the whole, cut taxes, flattened taxes, and you saw tremendous economic growth. Clinton and cut taxes when the Republican Congress came in with the contract with America, and his capital gains tax cut led to 1% higher GDP. That extra growth, particularly in the tech sector, brought in so much more revenue that by holding the line on spending, which was the last time Congress held the line on spending, we actually had a surplus for the first time in about 40 years. Um, again, the Bush tax cuts helped generate economy the Trump tax cuts did too. They increased economic growth from two and a half to four and a half percent and greater investment. Conversely, with the Biden tax increase recently, where the Congress did go along with about less than half a trillion dollars of tax increases, they coupled that with multiple trillion dollars of deficit spending. Um, So increasing taxes in the past, has not been accompanied with, tax, with spending cuts. It's been accompanied with more spending. Uh, Reagan found that out. He thought he had a deal with the Democrat Congress where he would raise one of those tax increases or mentioned, and in exchange they would reduce spending by two or three times the amount. Well, they took the tax increase, but the liberals in Congress went ahead and actually kept the spending. So it's not a recipe for dealing with the key problem which is we have runaway spending, we have no political control on that. We've got leaders in the Republican Party, like Mitch McConnell, saying it's always good politics to spend more money. Um, So there isn't that type of leadership in our party to actually do something about the spending. It's hard. Um, But if we raise taxes, typically that puts the burden of paying for all that spending in an ever-increasing amount on working families. The middle class has to carry the greater burden of tax increases. You can say tax the rich, you can say tax corporations, but inevitably they pass it on down to the consumers. And so it's the the little guy, the working man, his family, who end up paying the bill when we raise taxes. I would say there are three justifications for lowering taxes, and I'll get into that in our back and forth.
2: Thanks to both of you, gentlemen. Let's take a quick break. When we're back, we're going to dive into this discussion on the question, is the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes fiscally irresponsible? After this break.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
2: Welcome back to Open to Debate. I'm your guest moderator, Naima Raza, and we're debating the question, is the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes fiscally irresponsible? We've just heard opening statements from our two debaters, American Compass Executive Director Oren Cass and Club for Growth President David McIntosh. I want to try and summarize your arguments briefly before we dive into them. So I think, Oren, you started articulating what the two of you agree on, which is a lot. You're both conservative Republicans. You both agree that spending needs to come down. Uh, you both agree that federal deficit is a problem and it's a problem that you'd like to fix ideally with more revenue. And you both agree in the role of limited government. I'd add to that a fourth thing, which David, you brought up, which is that spending isn't coming down. Empirically, I think you both have argued this. Uh, Orin, you're saying even when taxes are cut, spending isn't coming down. And David, you're saying even when taxes are increased, spending isn't coming down. In terms of your arguments of why uh, what's happening and what needs to be done, Oren, you kind of laid out three ideas. First is, the, you challenge the principle, this principle that the Republican Party needs to be against raising taxes. They said this is a relatively new principle. It isn't borne out by the history of the Republican Party. And it's kind of a fundamentalism that might get in the way of effective policy to solve that urgent crisis of the of the federal deficit. You argued again, spending will not come down. Spending hasn't come down. And, and you actually said that this is a challenge because you want to align uh the public's understanding. You want to show the incremental cost of government basically and show people that they have to pay for that in the form of taxes versus just continuing to pay less for more government. And then thirdly, you pointed to the empirical evidence. Now, David actually challenged that empirical evidence. He pointed to a time in history, the 1990s, where there was a balanced budget. Uh, At that time, he was a congressman for Indiana in the House of Representatives. Um, And he also pointed out this idea that it would be irresponsible to raise taxes because it would distract from the broader question of spending. Because spending hasn't come down with any tax increases, it would be irresponsible to suggest that it might. And you finally, I think, brought up this idea that it's unsustainable, that right now where we are is unsustainable, but there is a model in the past. There's a model that we've seen, not just under Republican tax cuts, but under Democratic tax cuts, that we can actually get to more effective government bring down, balance the budget, and we need to do so because of the challenge of real and rising federal deficit and real rising interest rates. So I wanna, I wanna start with this empirical fact, because I feel like we have to close this argument. Orin, you're saying effectively, never have we seen these tax cuts deliver a reduction in, in government spending. Um, David is pointing to his particular point in time, the 1990s, and is arguing this idea of lowering taxes will grow the overall pie and therefore grow revenue. And he points to the 1990s as an example of that. Or how do you look at that? Was that an aberration? Was that proof of the policy? What What, what do you think?
0: Well, I, I guess I would I would challenge the, na- the the narrative that David presented in in a couple of ways. One is uh, I think it's fair to say that Reagan cut taxes more than he then re-raised them. It's also very important to note that Clinton raised taxes more than he then cut them. David mentioned a particular capital gains cut that did happen. But, in fact, the, the overall picture is that Reagan lowered taxes in the 80s, H.W. Bush and then Clinton raised taxes in the 90s. So all that wonderful boom that David is describing came in the context of a higher tax environment than what certainly Republicans were advocating for. Bush then cuts taxes 2001-2003, and we shift to a, a lower growth environment again. I don't know of anyone who argues that actually the economy performed better after the Bush tax cuts, than they were perform- than it's performing before them. If you actually look at what happened and and what was going on with spending, and, and I usually use as a share of gross domestic product. I assume that's typically how yeah. you guys will look at it as, a we- as well. It's a good way to understand how much are we collecting in taxes relative to the size of the economy. How much are we spending? Um, I just I jotted this down going in. So tax increases in 1990 and 1993. In the subsequent years, spending comes down significantly as a share of GDP after the tax increases. Then we cut taxes in 2001, 2003. Spending goes up as a share of GDP during the George W. Bush administration. Obama raises taxes in 2012. Subsequently, spending comes down as a share of GDP. Donald Trump cuts taxes end of 2017. Spending starts going back up as a share of GDP. So, in fact, empirically, In the wake of tax increases, spending has also come down. In the wake of tax cuts, spending has gone up faster. And I think this is particularly a problem for Republicans who simply cannot make a claim to having any sense of their own fiscal responsibility on the spending side or any plausible path, even if they controlled the entire government and could do whatever they want. There is no evidence to believe Republicans would actually bring spending down as much as they would need to, to sustain the, le- the level of taxes they keep insisting on.
1: I think it's a false analogy to link tax cuts with spending decisions, particularly since 2000, after Bush, or, H or W, was elected. Um, the spending decisions were separately made from the tax decisions, and there was no sense that we had to reconcile them mm-hmm. in balancing the budget. Uh, The decision was balanced budgets didn't matter. We, it's important that we spend the money. And what we've tried various ways of getting to a balanced budget requirement, almost passed the balanced budget amendment in the 90s, um, made a mistake of not accepting Gephardt's proposal, which would have been fine to include social security into that formula. Uh, And then we've tried automatic cuts, sequesters, and other ways of forcing Congress to reduce the spending. And the political will has not been there to keep those. In fact, you're right, Oren. Republicans have joined up with Democrats to break those type of balanced budget limits. And so the only real solution is to gain a political mandate to actually control spending. You look at the core of what Newt Gingrich put together in Contract with America, he and John Kasich, the budget chairman, were determined to get to a, a balanced budget. Um, they had a lot of other programs within that, some defense spending increase, welfare reform, tax cuts. But the political determination was we were going to reduce or hold even spending so we can get to a balanced budget. I haven't seen that momentum Certainly the Democrats don't ever believe that. They, they think more spending, larger government is the right policy. And now we're seeing, as you point out, $34 trillion in debt. But a third of the Republicans join in with them, um, and you see that um, it, I think of it as the appropriator caucus of Democrats and Republicans who get political benefits by spending other people's money. So,
0: so can I jump in right this? because yeah, I ahead. think I, okay. there were two important points there in my mind that that I entirely agree with, but it, Evan, but leads me to a very different conclusion. One is, as you as you said, there is no link between the tax policy decision and the spending policy decision. That that I think is exactly what I'm trying to say, that it is not the case that if you increase taxes, well, then spending is going to run away, or if you cut taxes, well, that's how we get spending down. These these are separate conversations, in a sense. Um, And then secondly, to your point, if we are going to make any progress on this, we are going to need a political mandate. We need to actually construct a political coalition that can make progress. And so in my mind, the, the, the key question is, where is that political mandate going to come from? And this is where the, the $10 of spending cuts, $1 of spending increases, I think is such a useful construct. Which is more likely as an agreement that could actually make progress politically? $10 of spending cuts with $1 of sp- tax increases, or $10 of spending cuts with $0 of tax increases? Which one do you think is a better chance of actually building momentum in the American political
1: system? So uh, if those tax, $1 of tax increases are honest tax increases that the middle class is going to pay, I I don't think that builds the political coalition. Older guys like me that served with President Reagan view the policies that he had, I I think correctly, as the right vision for a good good economy, good country, strong country. um part of their criticisms I hear is, you guys just keep saying we need to do Reagan. We need to think of policies, conservative policies. And that's not that what we'll, you're saying? That's yeah. correct. I, I have stopped saying that and started arguing for the virtues of the policies mm-hmm. that I believe in. And I think Oren challenging conservative leaders to do that and to reach out to a broader coalition that Donald Trump brought into the Republican Party, um, which includes a lot of middle class working families that grew up voting Democrat, Felt the party left them, and now will vote Republican. And so, let me turn to why I think the tax increase part of it is a mistake.
2: Well, I want to ask you a question before you sure. get there, which is, I, I I just want to point out that or when he was stating back your two positions, I think the first one it, it was a was a bit different to what I heard David say. So, I want to get to that, which is, I don't think David, if I understand your argument correctly, you don't think that cutting taxes is necessarily going to get us decreased spending, but you think that a discussion around cutting taxes could distract us from the more urgent question around cutting spending. Is that correct?
1: I don't think his trust that we could put together a package of some tax increases and a lot of spending cuts will actually work politically. The, The ability to actually enact those spending cuts will Will be there'll be incredibly pressure against it. I think we've got to figure out a mechanism and a message that directly focuses on the spending part and forces people politically to do that because of the the voters being so upset at what's happening.
2: What is your plan to do that? Because I mean, obviously, a big part of spending is uh, you know Social Security and Medicare, which. Almost all, de- all Democrats and most Republicans aren't going to feel politically uh, comfortable cutting, yeah. uh, given their constituencies.
1: And I, and I think politically it's not wise to start with that mm-hmm. as your focus on cutting spending. Um, one of the things that, that is little known is that about a third of, of programs we call entitlements are not Social Security. They're not Medicare. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're farm subsidies. There are other programs that, didn't want to go through the political process, so they convinced Congress to make them a permanent spending plan. I think we should look at those and see, are we getting our value out of that type of spending? And then I think up and down review of what the government spends money on um, and getting rid of the spending that we don't need that, frankly, the private sector should provide for. You know, along with the concern about the economy is a growing concern about institutions like colleges and corporate America pushing a social agenda that many voters don't want. And that's part of the coalition. You're
2: talking that, about things like f- student loan forgiveness or like, what are you? Student loan forgiveness, talking
1: about? but more pressure for, um, a woke agenda in the workplace, a woke environment at the universities. So, yeah, Those I, are not ec- pure to say economic issues. But I think, actually, the solution to those, and some people have said, okay, we'll regulate and tell them they can't just have liberal social arguments, they've got to have conservative ones. I think that's a mistake. I do think we should look at all the spending and say, where have we subsidized social programs that we think are bad for the country, and let's stop that spending.
0: Great, right. I want so, well, to let I that. appreciate the way sort of David has run through those priorities, because they, when we talk about how Republicans have failed to get spending under control this is how. The the list of things you just described, if if we cut all of those, if we wiped out all the woke-related spending entirely, if we wiped out farm subsidies, if if we did that stuff, there is no way we would get spending as a share of GDP below 20%. It has not been below 20%, by the way, average over the last 40 years. It has not been below 20% average over the last 20 years. There's no way that sort of budget is going to get spending as a share of GDP under 20%. Now, I think the things you've described are good. We should do them. But this underscores the fact that while we have a major spending problem, it is not only a spending problem. That the GOP tax agenda, if we look at what the Trump policies were raising as a share of GDP, it was about 17%. And what you've just described, I have i have not seen any plausible budget that gets our spending down to 20%, 17%. And what you've just gone through explains Why? Because as politically unwise as you say it may be to raise taxes, the spending cuts that you would need to get to 17% of GDP is far, far, far more politically unwise. And so what we have is a situation where, yes, spending has to come down a lot. Let's say not only 20, let's get to 19. You still need more tax revenue. And that's where this 10-for-1 piece becomes so important. And where, by the way, if, if you're actually... Trying to craft a plan, you can do it responsibly. So you,
2: I, I want to just pause for a moment so listeners understand the reason you want to you're talking about a 20% target is because the current uh, federal deficit of $34 trillion is about twenty is about 1.2 times GDP, correct? is that no, why well, you're so, trying to adapt? So the
0: if if you just think about the size of our government, right. the most helpful way to think about it is what share of our GDP is collected as taxes mm-hmm. and what share is spent. And so that 20% number happens to be going all the way back to 1980 roughly what the federal government spends every year. Right now, we're way above that. To David's point about the spending so problem, I, that I agree David with. want yeah, to David um,
1: yeah. So my solution wouldn't be to proportionally increase spending to GDP. It would be to hold it flat and grow GDP through a low tax policy. And because if you me. increase taxes, that decreases the growth of the economy, decreases wages, decreases the ability of people to invest and deploy their capital because the resources are coming to the government rather than staying in the hands of the private sector. And you
2: believe that cutting taxes is sufficient to raise revenue because it will so stimulate the economy.
1: So we have a relatively low tax environment now, Mm -hmm. which should assist us in growing the economy. You've got other policy questions like overregulation and government competition with the spending that are a problem. Um, what I'm worried about is something Orton mentioned: the automatic tax increase that's coming up in 2025,
2: and which is, which otherwise stated, could be the expiry of tax cuts. Right. So you're saying that lower tax, just so I can understand, a consistently low tax environment, which we currently have because of uh, Donald Trump's 2017 tax cuts, actually acts as a stimulus for private investment, for the economy to grow, and that government could tax that economy at a lower rate to bring in more revenue. The challenge has been the uncertainty that's created by the fact that these tax cuts are not permanent.
1: That's right. I think there are other policies that will accelerate that growth, um, such as reducing the regulatory burden.
0: So I think as a court note, we've, we've established here there is no actual plan to get spending down to the level that we are apparently willing to tax at.
2: Although you both want, it sounded like there was some uh, interest in reducing woke spending. I don't know. I don't I, exactly well, I know got exactly what exactly. a, share, as a it means, of the yeah, budget, it's irrelevant. Or, or it's an interesting
0: political something. argument. It's not going okay. to anything about our spending problem. Got it. So what you see happening now, and this goes exactly to this question of is it fiscally irresponsible, there's no actual plan here. To balance the budget, instead, there's a claim that if we keep taxes low enough, we're going to get enough growth that the budget sort of will magically balance over time. And so, I
1: just think I want to emphasize. Let me, let me interject. I, I do think we should actually have a ta- spending cut, start with just returning pre-COVID spending because we don't we don't need all the spending that was added during COVID. I mean, I, I right. do advocate for but, s- a very significant sure, spending
0: but cut. but that does not. Close the deficit or achieve what we agreed right at the beginning was our goal, which is we need to be raising enough revenue to cover all the spending we are in fact doing.
1: No, no, I I haven't agreed with that as a goal. I think we need to have a tax policy that contributes to economic growth and that when we hold, cut the spending back to the way it was pre-COVID and hold it level, that growth will get us to a point where we can balance the budget.
0: This idea that, well, if we cut taxes, we'll get more growth— it is just not true. It is something people say. I, I just want to read. Let's look at the Bush tax cuts as an example. I brought a great paper written by Andy Samwick, chief economist in the George W. Bush administration, said there's no first-order evidence in the aggregate data that these tax cuts generated growth. Careful microeconomic analyses give similar conclusions. More generally, tax cuts that are financed by debt for an experienced period of time which is what you are proposing, will have little positive impact on long-term growth and could reduce growth. Okay? The actual economic literature on deficit finance tax cuts, especially when taxes are as low as they are already, right? This is not Reagan Day's 70% marginal rates. We already picked that fruit. There is virtually no evidence that at current levels, tax cuts generate growth. It is, it is simply something we say to justify the lower taxes, which if that's your priority is fine, but it is not fiscally
2: responsible. We're going to have to go to a break and we will come back to continue the conversation around the question, is the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes fiscally irresponsible? Families have a lot going on. Welcome back to Open to Debate. I'm your guest moderator, Naima Reza, and I'm joined here by debaters Oren Cass and David McIntosh, two influential Republicans associated with American Compass and the Club for Growth, respectively. They have been vehemently, but civilly, I would say, disagreeing over this question. Is the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes fiscally irresponsible? We were just in the middle of a heated exchange where, uh, Oren, you were you were quoting um economist Andy Samwick, and, and challenging a core part of David's argument that tax cuts will grow the economy. They will stimulate private sector investment. They will make the economy more productive. Um, David, what do you say? Yeah, I, I vehemently
1: disagree with that analysis because, I mean, the fact is after the Bush tax cuts, We saw the economy grow faster than inflation, which it hadn't been doing before. After the Trump tax cuts, we had 3% GDP growth, and investment grew from 2.5% to 4.5%. So you can be very selective in these economic studies to to get to a result. Uh, My thesis on this is that both for Bush at the beginning of our deficit spending run, more for Obama and even more for Trump, The overhang of the debt and refusal to deal with the spending question is what has caused the negative effects on the economy. And to have a solution that says we're going to make it harder for our economy to grow, harder for people to invest, harder for workers to earn more money by raising all of their taxes, and assume that that's going to take care of our debt problem, I think is a fallacy. The Democrats (laughs) believe it. Um, I don't think Republicans should.
2: So I want to really go back to the principles. Um, one of the principles that I think is really interesting is that spending and taxes don't seem to be related in, in many ways. We've seen two crises, a pandemic. And a recession in 2008 and, um, and 2020, obviously with the pandemic where we've needed massive stimulus bills. There's also been wars. Like we've been a nation that's been at war for the last, you know, 20 years until uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and now is supporting quite expensive foreign policy in the Ukraine and, and the Middle East. And so these have been, um, drivers of spending in addition to entitlements that are growing. Another driver of spending, of course, is rising inflation. Uh, the, Government, you know, when there was a $2 trillion deficit, uh, last year and $600 billion plus of that was driven by the fact that in 2022, that was, that was used to pay down the debt because interest rates are rising. So I I just want to ask this question. Is any of this realistic? We are talking about a $34 trillion deficit. Is it, is it realistic to actually make a dent? Because that, you know, that deficit has just gone up year after year. It's a, it's an up into the right curve. Uh, so yeah, Warren, is this even possible what you're laying out? I mean, is it a pipe dream? Is it possible? Tell us. I,
0: well, I'm very optimistic. For the first two centuries of the American Republic, we had no problem running a relatively balanced budget, raising taxes commensurate with what we spent. Um, you know the 1980s and Reagan's policies were very interesting in a lot of ways. I think, on net, they did a lot of good. There was obviously the foreign policy dimension of it as well. Then coming to the 1990s, and again, balance the budget. And 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 again, let's just keep in mind, Clinton tax environment much higher than today's tax environment. If we went back to the Clinton tax environment, we would we would cover the revenue raised side of any sort of deal easily. Now, David would say. That would destroy what, wage What would you say, and, and, David? And the spending is, is, differential is huge. That's, no, that's right. We have to bring the spending down yeah. too. But my point is that, well, you know, somehow this is bad for the economy, and growth will slow, investment won't happen, wages, et cetera, et cetera. If we had the Clinton tax environment, is refuted by the Clinton tax environment. And so uh, the reason I'm going through this is to say, what changed, and, and we agreed on this at the beginning. I think is one of the two political parties decided we will never again accept raising taxes. We will just keep cutting them and also, by the way, not be very responsible on so spending.
2: I want to ask, uh, you know, David, you identified yourself as an old guard Republican who's worked in the Reagan administration, et cetera. So what, this is when the policy changed. I mean, there were times in, you know, uh, when President Kennedy wanted to uh, wanted to cut taxes, and Republicans you know, advised him against it, or f- fought him to no, but keep did, taxes Nobody did, and it benefited and the did. economy. But, but, but this is a relatively recent phenomenon in the Republican Party. So explain to us why you think it's so fundamental, why you think it's so core.
1: I, again, it, it's the point you emphasized that I made earlier, is um, a tax increase is a deflection from the real problems we have. Um, I, I do, too, remain an optimist. Um, I, I think it's going to take leadership that looks beyond the question of taxes and says, what is a f- responsible spending here? We shouldn't, as politicians, just try to buy our re-election by adding more spending. But that that's just one of the other questions. Another one is to take a deep look at the role of government in the economy and in our lives. We've used the regulatory systems from securities regulation, approval of healthcare products, labor regulation to impose an enormous burden, particularly on the manufacturing, producting side of the economy. The financial side's relatively less regulated. But on the, the production side, there's a huge economic burden that we place on them that we don't get that much benefit from. We need to protect safety, health, and the environment. But we don't need the government dictating how gov- how private sector allocates its resources for those goals. We should set the standard and then let the incentive effect of the private sector and competition you know who can do, who can meet the goal the cheapest and I, the most effective.
2: I, I think, I think and, that and
1: that's let me just close by yeah. saying the cost of that is borne almost directly by working middle class Americans. Um, job a job in America. Cost an extra 30,000, 35,000 in regulatory costs. If a job goes to Mexico or to China, they don't pay those costs. So, in addition to the wage differential that people look at, the cost of government in our working economy is enormous, and and we've got to have fine leadership who will deal with that and cut it.
2: I want to give, I I want to, this comes back to a point that Orrin was making earlier who pays for the cost of increasing government? You're, and I, I, I want to give you, or in a minute, to respond to this.
0: I think there are an enormous number of things we could be doing to promote growth, many well, of which I, I David agree. just described. Not coincidentally, though, we're not talking about taxes anymore because on the tax question, it is not at all clear that at the current tax rates that we have, more tax cuts is somehow the thing that we need. And and I just there, there's this wonderful anecdote. This was as they were trying to sell the Trump tax cuts. I think this was the Wall Street Journal annual CEO con- conference. One of the Bush officials was up on stage talking about how this was going to unleash investment, whatever. The moderator just turned to the audience and said, how many of you uh, are going to increase your investment if the Bush tax cut goes through? And, like, literally no one raised their hand. To the point where the Bush official said, why aren't your hands up? Mm. And and that's the reality. This is not, at this point, actually good economics or good policy. It's just ideology, and it's not supported by the actual history of what has worked in America.
2: So, I want to ask a specific choice in that, and we have a few minutes left. And I want to ask specifically about a particular kind of tax, which is very politically heated discussion. Uh, carried interest, the carried interest tax uh, provision, which which uh, was thought that it would come down under Biden's um, Inflation Reduction Act, but Senator Kristen Sinema, a Democrat, uh, you know, stood up for the lobby and kept that, you know, ensured that the private equity uh, tax benefit, private equity venture capitalist hedge fund tax benefit that allows their uh, carry in these vehicles to be taxed at a lower uh, long-term capital tax gains rate um, be allowed to continue. So I'm curious if each of you would support uh, raising taxes on those, you know, on those financiers by getting rid of the Carried interest tax. So, Orrin, you first, are you supportive? I, I
0: would certainly get rid of the carried interest loophole. I yeah. just would say, I do want to.
2: But I, but I, but I want to hear from you. Yeah, but you I know. just
0: want to note that this is sort of the left's equivalent of the let's cut woke spending. Okay. Like, nice political talking point. I think substantively we should get rid of it. Has zero impact on the actual fiscal situation.
2: Uh, yes, because it would not make as much of a dent as yeah, a real, it's a political significant talking point tax the same way rate.
1: the woke yeah. So,
2: okay. What do you think,
1: David? Yeah, would uh, you
2: agree to such a tax? Because that that wouldn't affect the middle class. No,
1: right? Well, That's I would stemically. not in, get rid of that um, for the following reasons. One, this is a little bit wonkish, but. Uh, over the last five, 10 years, the, the big loophole's been shrunk. You have to hold, they have to hold the value longer. Mm-hmm. Many of the hedge funds don't get the full advantage they used to from that. So it's not as big a wide open disparity between that form of investment and others. But the real reason I wouldn't close it or change it is th- at that level, finance and investments are in- international. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for the people who take advantage of that now to move to Europe, England, other financial centers. And when they do, they could still invest in America and American companies, but psychologically, they're not here Hmm. and and they're gonna invest less than our country. So I don't think it raises any real revenue and it opens us to this risk that the financial structure moves overseas, no longer benefits American companies.
2: I wanna just close with asking, or which taxes would you suggest increasing?
0: Well, so one area is tariffs, I think, mm-hmm. and this gets into trade policy also, but tariffs generate a huge amount of revenue. That's one place. I think another is we have a lot of tax expenditures, tax breaks in the code, especially for higher income households, mortgage interest deduction, health insurance deduction, these kinds of things. There's, there's literally hundreds of billions of dollars in those mm-hmm. places. And then I would take marginal rates back to where they were in the Clinton administration, which, as we saw There is no conflict between that and the kind of investment
1: economic growth we want.
2: David, are any of those increases, uh, you know, acceptable to
1: you? To to take it on its merits. the one part I would agree with is to close a lot of the tax expenditures. I wouldn't touch the interest rate deduction, and I wouldn't touch the charitable deduction, um, because those are so fundamental to the way our society's been built up in very good ways. But the rest of them, a lot of these corporate benefits and, and little deductions and, and exemptions they have, I agree with Orton. We should eliminate those, get closer to a flat tax. On tariffs, I think we have to acknowledge the people who pay those tariffs are the customers in this country, either business to business. So if you put a tax, a tariff on steel when it comes in, then a company that uses steel to make a car, to make anything, uh, pays higher cost for their input and passes that on to their customers.
2: So not a fan of tariffs. I'm
1: not a fan of tariffs. Got it, even though Um, it's a part of— You know, we think at the Club for Growth, we think, what would this policy do for someone who shops at Walmart? Hmm. Um, And Walmart shoppers have a huge benefit of less expensive goods, most of which are imported from India, China, and other countries.
2: We're going to run out of time, but I want to ask you each for 15 seconds before we get to closing arguments. What has been the most compelling argument you've heard from your opponent in this debate? And I'll start with you, David. What's the most compelling yeah, argument? I think
1: it, it does go all. back to the, uh, we need to clean up the tax code for these benefits for particular industries or parties and, and get to a flatter tax that, that is lower and everybody benefits from.
0: I appreciated David's point just now about the typical household of the Walmart shopper. I think if, if the club for growth's agenda and priorities were focused on the well-being of that household, I would be very happy.
2: Are you contending that they're not?
0: That would be a much longer discussion. Um, we'll say yes and, and go with that.
2: <laughs> okay. Sounds a bit like a no to me. Um, I, with that, I want to get into our closing arguments. Uh, Oren, you're going to have the first, uh, first shot at the mic drop. So you have two minutes to tell us why you're arguing yes to the question, is the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes fiscally irresponsible?
0: Well, I think the definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result. Uh, we have now had 30 years of a Republican Party that has insisted on signing Grover Norquist's tax pledge and also banging the table and claiming that we are somehow going to get spending down and balance the budget, and things have only gotten worse, regardless of who is in power. Um, the idea that if we just do that a little bit harder— it's, it's, it's really gonna work now is totally implausible and, and, and would I think lead to exactly the pessimism you described. Yet the 34 trillion is just gonna keep going up if we keep doing that. And it will keep going up until the system truly breaks. Uh, and, and that is the definition of fiscal irresponsibility. What are the alternatives? I guess one alternative would be betting that somehow you're going to Claim some super majority and have a totally different set of leaders and all the world's incentives are going to change and magically this approach that has never worked at all is going to work. Or we could look at the thing that worked repeatedly and consistently throughout American history. And by the way, is common sense, which is that people have to compromise. We have to pay for the spending we do. And if we want people The voters, to care about spending and think about bringing it down, they have to understand that they have to pay for the spending that we do. And so what does that look like? That looks like an actual deal where both sides come to the table and make real commitments. The idea that, like, well, but we're never going to get the spending cuts just isn't true. You can That's the entire premise of legislating. If you do a package, if all we did was say, hey, all of those expenditures that we were talking about we want to actually put those on the table. And in return for which, we actually want some serious legislative changes to things like farm subsidies. That could be a bill that actually moved with bipartisan support very quickly and was now a positive step. And that is entirely plausible except for the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes, which is fiscally irresponsible.
2: Thank you, Oren, for that. David, now you're going to have the final word here. Tell us why you are arguing no to this question, is the Republican Party's refusal to raise taxes fiscally irresponsible?
1: Thank you. And it's been great to be here with both of you. I, I firmly believe it would be a terrible mistake for the Republican Party to embrace a tax increase agenda. I think it would, first of all, hurt Americans who are working and trying to make a living for their families. It would hurt the investment in the economy. And it would grow the government, which would limit individual freedom. Um, When government takes resources out of the economy for its spending priorities, it means people have fewer resources to pursue their dreams, their lives, their freedom to make choices for themselves. And the economic effect of that is to slow down the entire economy and to become more like a socialist country like they are in Europe, which the citizens end up suffering for that with a lower benefit of living, a lower lifestyle and less, less benefits for them and their children. So it would be a mistake for Republicans to embrace that. I also think it would be politically disastrous for Republicans to do that because they're viewed now as the only thing that is holding back government. And as you pointed out in poll after poll shows, Americans no longer feel government is actually good for them. Um, The government has lost the trust of the American people, in part because of the dysfunction we see, in part because of the self-interest that the elite who run government have shown in the way they deploy it. So I think the best economic solution is to face the fact that there's an automatic tax increase on the table. Oppose that, say we're going to extend the current tax cuts, and then develop a program to grow the economy, to get back to a robust competitive economy that isn't micromanaged by the government.
2: Thank you, David. Thank you, Oren. I'd like to thank our debaters for being with us here today. We so appreciate you showing up. You're approaching this debate with an open mind and strong arguments and bringing your thoughtful disagreement to the table. In short, you're being open to debate. Thank you for being here, Jens. This
0: was awesome,
1: thank you. It was, thank you. It was a lot of fun. And the commitment to debate, I think, is even more important than tax policy. And so thank you for (laughs) sponsoring a program that promotes that.
2: Thank you. And I want to give a big thank you to the audience who tuned into this episode of Open to Debate. As a nonprofit working to combat extreme polarization, through civil debate, our work is made possible by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and supporters of Open to Debate. This show is generously funded by a grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our CEO is Claya Connor. Leah Matthau is our chief content officer. This episode was produced by Alexis Pancrazi and Marlette Sandoval, editorial and research by Gabriella Mayer and Andrew Foote. Andrew Lipson and Max Fulton provided production support. Millie Shaw is director of audience development. And the Open to Debate team also includes Gabrielle Yannicelli, Rachel Kemp, Linda Lee, and Devin Shermer. Damon Whittemore mixed this episode. And our theme music is by Alex Clement. And I'm your guest host, Naima Raza. We'll see you next time on Open to Debate.